Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nucleus Investment Insights. We have another special guest this week in Alex Vikovic, who is currently digital editor at the refreshed Sky News business channel, which is now called Your Money. In today's interview, we dive into Alex's take on the major outcomes of the Royal Commission, the impacts expected on both the incumbent advice majors and new licensees, and how the changing landscape of financial advice is to look in the near future. During his many years as managing editor of a number of leading financial publications, Alex sits in the perfect position to provide some serious insight into a major component of the Australian economy. After the interview, we'll then look at some of the wider investment implications that these themes can impact on how we invest money every day at Nucleus Wealth. So join Nucleus Wealth's Head of Investments, Damien Classen, and myself as we learn more about the real impacts that the banks are having on everyday Australians' lives and what looms in their future and the future of the Australian property market. I hope you enjoy. Today on the podcast, we have experienced news reporter, magazine editor, foreign correspondent, speechwriter, and author of the biographic book, USA G'day. Alex Vikovic, welcome to Nucleus Investment Insights. G'day, Tim. Thanks for having me. So I might start with a question that I've posed to a few of our recent guests, and I'll just provide a bit of background. Um, so we had around 18 months of debating in Parliament as to whether or not we should even have a Royal Commission. Uh, we've now had public hearings over 68 days over 130 witnesses in the stand and over 10,000 public submissions provided. We've had a number of banking elite heads that have rolled and we've seen hospitalisations both physically and career-wise throughout the uh, the Commission. And now, of course, we've got a 1,000-page report telling us, in essence, that it's all the fault of the regulators and the mortgage brokers. So given your experience covering, covering news for many years in the Australian financial services industry, is this the Royal Commission that you could have hoped for? Well, you know, I think you mentioned there the 18 months of debate, but I think probably, Tim, you can date it back to at least five years we've been having this debate over what indeed we should do um, to fix the problems in the financial system. I certainly um, have been covering, you know, calls for a Royal Commission um, for that long. Um, look, I think similar to what perhaps many of your listeners are feeling, um, I certainly... Um, felt a sense of disappointment um, at the final report itself. Um, I was pretty public about that. I spoke about that on telly, on Your Money, um, and I wrote an opinion piece about that, which you can get at yourmoney.com.au slash royal. Um, and that's because of a, a few things. As you say there, um, there was firstly a lot of emphasis placed on mortgage brokers. Now, whatever you think around upfront commissions, and we can have a deeper chat about that if we want, um, as someone who was in the room for much of the inquiry um, and listened to pretty much all of the testimony, um, you know, I really don't see the causal links between upfront mortgage broker commissions um, and the misconduct that we heard. Um, separately, it might be good public policy to do away with them, although I would, um, I would argue, you know, it, it, it probably isn't. Um, but, you know, putting that to one side, I, I really don't think that um, solving this issue, you know, goes to some of the deeper problems that we heard over the last 12 months. So that was the first thing was this kind of knee-jerk response from the Royal Commissioner um, to go at intermediary remediation, uh, remuneration uh, rather, not, you know, firstly on the mortgage brokers, but also financial advisors, you know, that grandfather commissions are back on the table and they should be banned, um, you know, enhanced disclosures and so on. So, you know, we can get down into the guts of what it means for financial advisors and their clients. But overwhelmingly, I thought there was a disproportionate mention around intermediaries. You know, it was literally the first recommendation of the 76. Um, and I, um, you know, and I don't think that's reflective of, of, of what we'd heard over the last, you know, 12 months or so. Um, that was the first thing. The second thing that was disappointing was, again, kind of a lazy um, response from the Royal Commissioner on this idea that ASIC um, and the other corporate regulators um, should now go and, and implement these industry codes of practice. Now, these documents are okay as documents, but you look at who's come up with them. It's the Australian Banking Association, the Financial Services Council, and all of the organisations who were for several years trying to obfuscate this debate, um, stop a Royal Commission from happening and said we shouldn't have one. Um, and now the Royal Commissioner, Royal Commissioner is, is recommending that we use their in-house 
ethical guidelines, you know, that have been written by a bunch of lobbyists um, as, as being some sort of panacea for the industry. So I think insofar as um, this recommendation in particular would help entrench the power of those lobbying organisations, I don't see how um, Ken Hayne could possibly think that's in the public interest, particularly since his inquiry, um, you know, took aim at those organisations from time to time. Um, so that was the second thing. And then the third thing, you know, was um, I think the concern that probably the general public had, which was where are the heads on stakes? Um, you know, there wasn't any individual accountability um, in the report um, as such, despite the fact that, you know, throughout the inquiry, individuals were named and shamed and, and put on the stand. And, and that was the whole point of this inquiry was to try and get the individuals responsible um, to, to answer for themselves. Um, now, that's not to say that we won't see that. Obviously, the Royal Commissioner referred a number of matters um, to the very regulators that, of course, he also said were, were incompetent from time to time. Um, we'll see what happens with those um, you know, potential prosecutions. But overall, I think when it comes to the recommendations, um, I was certainly disappointed. And I think, you know, we heard from the very first minute of the Royal Commission, Rowena Royal Council assisting, said that they weren't just going to look at um, illegality, but also at any conduct that had fallen below community expectations. Um, and frankly, I think um, the Royal Commission itself has um, been guilty of the same in the end. Mm, okay, yeah, sure. And look, you touched on there, and obviously um, I think for anyone who was uh, following uh, through your uh, last masthead at the IFA, it was uh, riveting riveting updates that I think uh, a lot of the financial planning industry, myself included, was, uh, it was pretty much a pay-per-view event. So I, I, do, uh, I do thank you for that effort that you had in spending <laughs> all that time there with yourself and your team. Um, yeah. You mentioned that. So um, the I guess the question really revolved around perhaps was it, diving into the cultural sort of side of the way that the banks operate as well, as opposed to just the raw legality or illegality? Yeah, well, I think that, that was the, the point. But I think, you know, there are a lot of upsides in this inquiry and what's come out of it, which I can get to. I think the problem um, is not with what the Royal Commission focused on. Frankly, I think they did a wonderful job of uncovering the misconduct um, and apportioning blame to a certain extent at the right sources. Um, you know, a number of senior business leaders um, fell on their swords over things that either they were directly responsible for um, or that occurred under their watch. Um, and that we rarely saw happen before this inquiry. Um, and also, of course, they brought to light um, a whole range of stories and case studies that, um, you know, might have been whispered about in the industry but wasn't widely known and certainly the consumer had no idea. So um, I think what they focused on was right. Where I think there's been a problem is simply in the recommendations. And, you know, there may still be, he, he also says in his final report, um, the, the, you know, the, there needs to be more widespread reform of the law. He doesn't recommend that, though, but he does say this is just a starting point. So, you know, we may see this debate ongoing. Um, what I think the problem was, though, was uh, I think that the commissioner and the lawyers that are working with him um, are skilled at what they do. Um, and you're, you know, the people listening will understand that. People have their various areas of expertise and theirs is prosecutorial. You know, they got, they were excellent at cross-examination. They were forensic in their, um, you know, analysis of the documents that the banks and the others were, were forced to put forward. Um, and they did a really good job of bringing to light these issues. It's a very different skill to then take all of that information and make public policy recommendations. I mean, the Royal Commission is not a think tank. Um, it's mm. not a bunch of, of academics and policy experts. And I think, frankly, that's why um, what they ended up recommending was, you know, not really um, visionary enough, um, to put it mildly. It seems to me as though they just said, well, what do we do now? Um, and they looked at the you know, findings of previous inquiries like the Sedgwick Report and the Productivity Commission um, and Dyson Hayden's recommendations, and they just sort of cobbled together a, a report that recommends stuff that we've heard for years and years, like reforming mortgage broker remuneration and, and ending grandfathered commissions for financial planners. So, um, you know, I, I think that that was, a, you know, a breakdown in the process. So um, hopefully now... 
um, others who are watching closely and our elected policymakers have a look at exactly what the misconduct was that occurred and they reflect on it properly and they look beyond the recommendations. But I, I don't hold my breath on that because, of course, the whole political discussion now heading into the election is around these 76 dot points and how many are going to be implemented. And how. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Alex, right. um, we... We, we had the view sort of coming out of this that um, there's certainly some short-term issues, uh, which, which we'll sort of go into a little bit later, just over the whole housing prices and and, and issues with the HEM and, and, and things like that that sort of are forcing down credit. But mm. I guess as a, as a big picture view, um, the, the longer-term look for the banks is still relatively bright in terms of, you know, you could have looked at these things and they could have said, okay, we need structural separation or we need, you know, Dodd-Frank type laws or, or whatever yep. it is to try and yep. separate these various things and to lower returns that banks could make over, um, you know, the, over the course of a cycle. But effectively, it does appear as if they're sort of, you know, besides the short-term economic issues of, of uh, lending growth sort of fading away, um, they're still, banks still have the license to, to go out and make as much money as they possibly can through as many different avenues as they possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, look, for anyone who has been following um, financial regulation in the last few decades, and particularly since the GFC, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that we have now learnt that the banks are too big to fail. Um, I think that probably would have been a, a foregone conclusion before this inquiry. Um, and of course, in Australia, we have a, a banking guarantee. Um, we have a four pillars policy, which treats those four particular organisations almost as protected species under the law. So, we, you know, we knew that um, it was probably going to end up in a position where the banks were still all powerful. Um, but as you allude to there, um, they may have recommended some things that were a lot more systemic um, and a lot more than sort of, you know, focusing on the low-hanging fruit of mortgage brokers and, and so on. Um, for example, I mean, you could have, as you said, breaking up the banks um, would have been one potential solution, but even just reform of the uh, licensing regime in general. Now, look, I've been covering this space for some time and I, I was watching it unfold on telly like a lot of your listeners um, were. And to me, you know, one of the things that continues to come up, particularly in that wealth management space, is the licensing system and the power that individual organisations have over other organisations when they authorise them um, under their licence. Um, that is where a lot of the misconduct occurs and also the product bias um, and just generally some of the business activity that has found to not be in the public interest. It often occurs by way of that weird relationship that we have in the corporation's law. Um, and there was no discussion at all from Kenneth Hayne in his final report around reforming the AFSL regime or overthrowing that regime. Um, when it comes to financial advisors, he made an odd statement about needing them to register individually. But mm. most of the lawyers that I've spoken to are not reading that as a recommendation towards fully-fledged individual licensing or away from the system that we've got now. So not only, I think, are the banks... Um, you know, in a pretty strong position following the inquiry. I also think that they were expecting to be hit harder when it comes to the, um, uh, you know, recommendations. And I do wonder whether, you know, we've seen over the last 12 months um, three of the major four organisations moving proactively to get out of the wealth management industry we haven't heard a lot of updates on that front about when and in what shape these new these divestments might occur. Um, and the answer that they've given is because of the Royal Commission. But when you factor in that it wasn't a recommendation to split these things off, that um, really, um, in some ways, the Royal Commission has recommended that the status quo continues when it comes to, you know, the way that aligned advice networks operate. Um, I wonder whether there's a few people in a boardroom saying, why did we make this announcement and, and are considering, you know, about turning on the whole thing and, and, and just sticking to a profitable, conflicted model? Um, yeah, look, 
And I think you make a great point there because certainly for mine, um, and obviously this is you know from the from an industry perhaps insider sort of you know point of view, I always suspected the aligned advice um, you know component of the Royal Commission was going to get a, a lot more airtime and a lot more attention, um, as I as I suspect perhaps a lot of people did. Maybe the big banks that were divesting at an alarming rate as well. Um, and do you, do you really feel it, it's almost like it's, a, it's an omission from the whole thing? Maybe just purely from the quantum of areas that the Commission covered? Um, do you think it was sort of given a back seat and perhaps even forgotten about or something more sinister? <laughs> no, look, I, I think that it was covered pretty comprehensively. And you've got to also factor in that a number of other inquiries have looked at this. Um, mm. you know, I think while it was, you know, it, it took a Senate inquiry to force them to do this, but they eventually launched their own what they call the Wealth Management Project where they look specifically at the six biggest advice providers and the quality of advice they're looking at. Productivity looked at vertical integration and has had a lot to say about, about that, the Productivity Commission. Um, so, look, I don't think its remit was to deep dive on this particular issue, um, and it did raise plenty of problems within the aligned advice networks. I mean, Jack Regan's testimony around um, the buyer of last resort scheme at AMP, um, you know, was a pretty, um, you know, step-by-step analysis, if you go back and read it, of what is wrong with some of those big aligned networks um, and how they are using all sorts of legal structures and, um, you know, this whole idea of risk management to really be a front for trying to push consumers into certain products and increase funds under management. So I did, I do think that the Royal Commission dealt with that issue. Um, but as you say, look, it didn't seek to, to, to pull it apart. Maybe they were being reactive to the moves that the institutions have already made, but I, I don't think so. Um, I, and, and, in, and in some ways... You could argue that um, at least one of the recommendations entrenches that power um, of the align and that model of the aligned network. In particular, um, one of the recommendations is that financial advisors who aren't independent. Now, this is going to get complicated, but basically, mm-hmm. under the corporations law, section nine two three a, it sets out what a financial services provider needs to do um, in order to meet the legal definition of independence. If you don't meet that, um, which the vast majority of financial advisors don't, as you know, um, then Hain recommends that you need to write to your uh, clients explaining that and explaining why. Now, the banks are going to be very happy about that because that allows, that means that all of these um, non-bank groups in the middle, all of these um, sort of groups, perhaps like yourselves, who are providing uh, competition in the market, who have their own licence, who determine their own destiny, but who, um, for all sorts of reasons, aren't uh, legal independents, it makes it more difficult for them to differentiate their model versus the kind of service that you would get um, at a big four bank or a large financial institution. And I don't think it is the same sort of service. Um, and yet again, we're seeing that the banks, um, the bank lobbying on this to try and reduce those, um, I guess, competitive advantages of the mid-tier um, non-institutional market. Again, that's that's working. And I think that's, you know, these lobbying organisations, um, you know, really working for their wage there. So, so just sort of following on from that point, um, how, how do you think the Royal Commission has impacted the, um, say, the IFAs or the, you know, the, the non-major advice providers in the, um, you know, in the in, in this part of the world? Well, look, I think it's 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 sort of um, two steps forward, one step back for that movement in in some ways. Um, you know, leading into the Royal Commission, I was in a very good position to to gauge um, in my previous role, um, I guess, the mood of the electorate um, in in the IFA sector and and financial advice industry. And, you know, clearly they were split. The industry was very split um, on this Royal Commission. Um, And a number of those in the independence space said, no, actually, it's a good idea because this is going to point blame where it needs to be pointed. Um, And I think that um, you know, leading into this, and it wasn't just the Royal Commission, there's been a whole range of things that have led to the independent movement. Um, you know, the 
Commonwealth Bank inquiry before the Senate was a major catalyst, um, in the productivity commissions and, and other inquiries. It's been a really a, a an escalating, you know, snowballing issue. So there has been this movement towards independence and the Royal Commission is part of that. And I think there was increasingly a sense of optimism heading into the Royal Commission. Um, I wonder now whether um, some of those independents um, are, you know, believing it to be a good outcome for them. Now, we should say the job of the Royal Commission was not to um, create more favourable business conditions for independent financial advisors. <laughs> so I, I don't think the general public cares, frankly, one way or the other, um, whether that's helped them. Now, you know, what the public does want is good quality service and they, they should be entitled to that. And in my personal view, they're more likely to get that from somebody who makes their own decisions um, and is as best as possible free of conflicts. Um, so, you know, the growth of the independence um, movement and, and that as a, as a purchasing option for consumers um, is, is, would be a positive thing. But I do think that, um, you know, some of that positivity will have um, died away. Um, because, you know, they will have read this final report and said, why is our grandfathered revenue front and centre when we've heard, you know, some really alarming misconduct um, that is higher up the chain than that and that hasn't really been addressed from a policy point of view. Um, for example, I mean, when I think about the last 12 months, what stands out to me is not grandfathered you know, conflicted remuneration for financial advisors. What stands out to me is the uh, evidence of AMP at the very senior level, you know, CEO and general counsel um, colluding with a blue chip law firm um, to lie to the regulators. And we may ultimately come to see those documents now, which I'm uh, relishing. Um, but, you know, that is the sort of... Um, cronyism and corruption in the system that is way more serious in my assessment than upfront commissions or the remuneration of small business people. Um, and I think that um, most IFAs would agree with me on that. Um, and I think they're disheartened that that's not where the conversation is right now. Um, mm. Having said that, um, you know, regardless of their sentiment, regardless of how they feel about stuff, um, there are clearly more independent options in the market now than there were a few years ago. Um, the banks themselves have thrown in the towel, even though they said that they would never get out of this market. Um, and so, you know, I think there are benefits to the consumer in having a more competitive market. And I think the Royal Commission can, can take some credit for that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, Alex, just moving on to... Um Onto the what I alluded to earlier about the uh, the, the, the sort of short-term slowdown, mm. I guess we we have a view of the Australian economy that um, a lot of the housing prices was basically uh, whether you want to call it liar loans or, or how you want to however you want to define it, but basically when when people can can get um, you know fifty percent more. Uh, they can loan fifty percent more than what they should be able to loan because they can because uh, they're using a a, a um, measure that's that's far too low. The banks yeah. are using a measure that's far too low. Um, that 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 inflates your your housing bubble for you and, and gives you um, you know gives you a run up in your housing prices. And so the removal of that uh, then sort of means that that um, is a big factor in in house prices falling. Um, the next take though was that. I guess a lot of people were looking to, at the uh, at the end of the Royal Commission to say, well, the banks have sort of tightened lending standards because this Royal Commission's on, and uh, once the Royal, once we actually get the recommendations, then they can actually then start. They'll know what where the um, they'll know where the line is drawn, and so then they can actually go back to lending a little bit more and and um, and and you know help help juice the economy again. Whereas given there was sort of no recommendation around that, and, and more specifically though um, that he. Uh, the Justice Hayne said that uh, you need to wait uh, for the outcome of a court case between Westpac and, and, mm. and ASIC. Mm. Uh, that sort of, to me, puts the uh, the banks sitting on their hands for another six to, to 18 months while we wait for this next uh, court case. So I guess there's not a lot of... Um, it's hard to find a bull case for the Australian housing market or, or a, a, a case that we're, we're getting close to the bottom when um, you know, we're not going to see... Uh, credit availability sort of expand for, for at least another six to 18 months. Yeah, so I, think, your thoughts. I think as you say there, um, you know, it's all eyes on that particular court case as well as another court case between ASIC and Westpac on general advice, um, which will have a huge impact um, on the market as well. 
But, you know, look, when it comes to these sort of monetary policy um, discussions and how they impact housing, you do have to feel for the central bankers in, in to some regard. I mean, if you have a look at, um, you know, our previous model and certainly what they had in the United States in the lead up to the financial crisis, you've got a government policy that is encouraging home ownership um, and arguably that leading to a lot of the um, problems in over-availability of credit and then, you know, all the securitisation that went on on the back of that. Um, so, you know, they tighten these things up in response to all the doom and gloom that the economists are putting out there. Um, and, you know, they can often go too far and perhaps we're seeing that now. What I find really interesting is in the last um, few days even, you know, the banks are launching new marketing campaigns um, and they've been pretty quiet on that front while the Royal Commission's been going on. It's been very general, you know, we support Australia um, type branding ads. But in the last few days, um, you know, they've been pushing, and we did a segment on this on Your Money Live last night, where they're really starting to, you know, unleash the gimmicks once again. They're talking about, you know, getting frequent flyer points um, to, you know, uh, with your home loan. So you, you have to wonder whether that indicates that it's not just um, this whole regulatory issue that is impacting this credit conversation and the banks being tight on credit, you know, is there a consumer um, confidence issue that's playing in here as well? Because if they're marketing people to take out home loans, um, that indicates to some extent um, the consumers thereafter, at least, uh, you know, may have some hesitancy as a result of all this change. Mm. And, and I think um, you sort of hit the nail on the head there. Like, obviously, the banks are potentially dipping their toes back into the water vis-a-vis -vis, um, home loans, perhaps trying to get ahead of the, um, the the undoing or the winding back or the watering down, perhaps, of the broker influence. But um, mm. look, for mine, it, it's always it's always been interesting because it, for, I don't think a broker does anything wrong. They go out there and find um opportunities that you can't get in the major banks um, or at least you can they, they, they give you access to um, you know second second tier or whatever you want to call it um, uh, opportunities that that don't have retail bank branches and in effect I think vis-a-vis -vis, that's sort of what a, a broker is in is in a, in a way um, the, the key thing there I think you said it a little bit earlier though was that by removing that you're putting a lot of power back into um, the banks but at the end of the day isn't it the lender that's responsible for approving the, the 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 level of debt, not the brokers per se? Now the broker might be able to do some things around the edges, um, and this is where I think um, Hayne was trying to address by going to a fixed fee model as opposed to percentage base and these sort of things. But um, what what are your thoughts on where the broker's responsibility stops and the lender's responsibility begins when it comes to things like you know over people overextending themselves with um, with credit? Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think mortgage brokers provide um, an important service um, in the market. And I think most people who are serious about, um, you know, competition and good consumer outcomes in um, the financial system, you know, would understand that important role that they play. Similarly, you know, I don't think that there was a problem with um, investment commissions necessarily in the financial advice space um, prior to the FOFA reforms. Um, and having watched that ban on commissions play out, that's one of the things that makes me as an objective uh, you know, uh, observer, I, I don't have any commissions and that's not how I'm remunerated in any way. As a third party, fourth estate watching this, um, that experience makes me nervous about this recommendation as well. Um, what I think sometimes gets conflated is, you know, people look at remuneration as being conflicted when really what we have is an honesty problem. And I think that is potentially true, both of financial advisors prior to FOFA and also mortgage brokers now, where the, the way that they're paid is not necessarily the problem. The way that they describe themselves to consumers um, is a problem. And, you know, advisors who, for example, were tied to certain products, um, perhaps were not, uh, you know, disclosing that properly. Um, you know, there were all sorts of sub-brands and subsidiaries. And, you know, I think if you went down the, the, the local street, um, and ask people, you know, does Westpac own St George and does the Commonwealth Bank own West, Bank West? People still don't know these things and it's imperative. Mm. That um, I think those sorts of issues um, were more of, of a problem. Um, so I think that, you know, a culture of honesty 
um, would have been a better solution. Now, of course, that's easier said than done. It's difficult to legislate, <laughs> difficult to legislate for. Um, but I think that mortgage brokers, for example, provide a great service. Having said that, I do think there are issues when, um, you know, brokerages are owned by lenders um, under, you know, very famous independent sounding brands um, and they're subject to all the same sort of vertical integration and um, product bias issues when it comes to their loan recommendations um, as financial advisors are. Um, I also think that, yeah, so lenders play... I'm sorry, Alex, just on, just on that one to, to cut in. So do you think, though, that's a... Um, that's sort of an ACCC, that's a competition issue that, that should have been done years ago in terms of saying, well, if you're 25% of the loan market, then you shouldn't be allowed to buy the brokers. Right? And and so now it's a matter of trying to clean that up as opposed to you know, having never let it happen in the first place. Yeah, look, I think so. But it's, it's not so much a problem that it is happening. The problem occurs in the, the amount of literacy that the consumer has in you know, what is going on here. Um, It's the visibility, it's the transparency around the ownership and it's this false pretense of independence that's the problem. So I'm not really sure that that is an ACCC issue because it's not my contention that these sorts of mergers and acquisitions should not be allowed to take place. Um, It's just that when they do take place, they shouldn't be able to pay John Simon as an actor, for example, um, and have, you know, a brand that is... Um, totally independent of the bank with a small um, disclosure or, or in the footer of their website that explains the fact that they are actually owned by the very people that in their TV advertising they claim to be providing competition against. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think that, that there is um, an issue there. And I think the other person that needs to take responsibility, of course, is the individual um, that is, you know, the, the, the borrower. And I think that that is the real upside to me um, of this whole Royal Commission process. Um, I think that we are seeing consumers look under the hood of the financial system in a way that they never have before. Um, Mm. I think that they are um, more awake to these issues, even if we can't rely on the Royal Commission or um, our elected representatives to put in place good policy around it. Um, I think that people are are really um, starting to become more educated about this. Um, And frankly, the launch of our channel um, is really a a symptom in some ways of that. I mean, Your Money is owned by um, Channel 9 and uh, and News Corp Australia um, in a joint venture, which is uh, interesting in itself, but we don't have time to get into all the politics (laughs) Um, but but to, to have two of the largest media organisations in the country um, see that there is an appetite for and a need for um, a full-time, you know, business channel that's devoted to these topics that we're discussing, among others, I think is really encouraging. Um, and I think that it, it really the, the Royal Commission has, has been a cultural shift in consumer land that is really positive because, um, you know, topics like vertical integration that once were you know, spoken about quietly at industry conferences, whispered, you know, over glasses of wine, um, are now um, spoken about on the ABC and on Channel 9 during um, mainstream segments. And, um, you know, we use these sorts of terms on our website and consumers are understanding them. Um, And that is because of, um, uh, you know, the Royal Commission essentially putting these issues on the agenda and taking them from the boardroom where they were hidden from public view and, and taking them directly to people's living rooms, which I think is, um, you know, an enormous public good that's come out of this process. Mm, absolutely. Um, and I guess really on that, um, so obviously, as we touched on quite a few times uh, through the course of this chat, um, that the Royal Commission was was quite good, I think, at the shock and awe public sort of side of things as we saw mm. fantastic viewing, um, you know, just just wonderful intercourse, I think, between <laughs> big companies and regulators and, and obviously um, and, the, and the Commissioner and his team. Uh, do you get the feeling that this may be sort of something of a, of a more common occurrence going forward? Now people know that there is this sort of, you know, I don't want to say whistleblower, but there's this opportunity for whenever uh, an industry feels like it's going to get getting a little bit ahead of itself to, um, you know, for politicians, for example, knowing the um, 
the impact that and the, the time it's taken and you know particularly 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 for uh, for labor and obviously this resounding win they've had in calling you know and fighting for a royal commission do you think this is a lever that might be pulled more often uh, going forward <laughs> look I, I, without doubt and 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 um primarily because um, those politicians who voted against this, um, you know, time and time again, um, you know, have got a lot of egg on their face and, and this is an election issue now um, and that's how much, you know, that's how important it is. Um, not just the politicians but there were a number of uh, media commentators, um, you know, out there who understand these issues. I'm, I'm glad to say that I wasn't one of them um, but there were a number who said that we don't need a Royal Commission, including the Financial Review's uh, editorial page. Um, and they had to come out and, and essentially issue a mea culpa after the first day of testimony um, uh, saying we got this wrong. So I think that now there is an understanding, and we have had, of course, other Royal Commissions before this um, in a quick succession um, that, uh, you know, have cut through, particularly the the Royal Commission into Child Sex Institutional Child Sex Abuse, um, and others. Um, I, I do think that this is going to keep happening. Um, and look, on the one hand, I think that that, that you, you can. It's very difficult to mount an argument that these sorts of inquiries are not in the public interest mm. um, when you consider that it's a whole bunch of stuff that's coming to light that um, is very easy to access. I mean, these are not, you know. Um, courtrooms where, um, you know, everything is hidden and subject to suppression orders. This is live television um, uh, that anybody can access and that is in reasonably, you know, simple to understand language um, and on, you know, individual case studies that are brought to light. So it's a format as well that is very powerful and that I think consumers have clearly engaged with. So we are going to see it um, more and more every time there's an issue. I think politicians are um, going to be increasingly hesitant to put their votes against it. Um, I think all of that is positive. Um, on the flip side, uh, you know, $76 million of taxpayer money um, went to paying a bunch of lawyers um, for mm -hmm. this inquiry. Um, and, you know, as much as I have listed a whole range of positives that have come out of it, I think it's for the public to decide whether it was ultimately a good spend in, in, of their money. Um, mm. and I think history tells us that these things are cyclical and, you know, I'd be very, very surprised if um, we had seen the end of misconduct in financial services. Um, indeed, you know, ASIC put out a report just yesterday saying that the big four are all talk and no action on fees for no service so far and the remediation of that issue. So, look, on the one hand, I support anything that, that is um, good for transparency and that um, allows, uh, you know, consumers to, to get access to this information. But I think, um, you know, there is a cost flow and effect as well and you've got to make sure that we're not um, using taxpayer money um, just to prop up the games of the rich and powerful and, you know, the media and, and um, politicians. Yep, sure. Just one last one, actually. So you touched on, um, I think, an important, uh, well, inevitability really of the of financial services and no doubt many others, which is that it does by and large operate in, in a quite a cyclical manner. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head there and obviously, um, the, you know, the cycles now change. So well, a quick, the question sort of really um relates to the fact that where do you see, look, obviously, well, given the fact that the banks have just unwound some pretty massive sales and distribution components of their business, right? Yeah. Um, so probably say we're probably at the low end of that cycle. Um, but what, what, where do you sort of see, given your experience in, in financial advice, um, you know, over the last what, decade or so, um, the, the financial advice industry heading in, in terms of that sort of makeup of independence and how that's going to interrelate with, with the larger uh, product providers, et cetera? Look, it's fascinating. I think obviously the, the trend at the moment is towards, um, you know, independence, whatever, you, you know, you kind of um, believe that to mean. Um, whether you see a whole bunch of consumers taking up legal independence that I referenced earlier, um, you know, we'll have to wait and see. It, it requires um, quite a... Um, you know, specific business model that may not be lucrative and, and that doesn't work in um, with some client bases and so on. So we'll see. Um, I think we're going to see that trend continuing. I think it's probably likely um, that 
there will be some policy change at some stage that aids that, um, whether you get an individual licensing type model, the way that lawyers have with the law society, the way that um, individuals have in the United States via the um, their regulators there, the SEC. So I think that that will aid that. But of course, there's always big things um, going on. And the reason that this stuff is cyclical is because um, a lot of the people who actually control um, the shape of the financial sector, um, you know, they continue to, to operate the way they always have. The first one is, of course, these lobbyists. Now, we touched on these um, briefly before, and I would include all of your trade associations um, in this bucket as well. Their job, of course, is to come out and to um, argue for policy outcomes that are in their members' interests. At least that has always traditionally been their business model. Um, they now try and um, say that they also act in the public interest, which, is, it's, it, which, as the Royal Commission pointed out, it's difficult for them to reconcile that. But the lobbyists, um, of course, will continue because they've got a guaranteed source of income by way of uh, professional education, the more we make that sort of stuff compulsory, the more that these organisations, trade unions on one hand and business representative trade associations on the other, the more powerful they are and the more that they are a structural part of the market. And you can't understate the influence that these groups have in terms of, um, you know, negotiating what the final law actually looks like. I mean, if you look at some of the laws that are pushed through in the financial space, I guarantee you that a lot of the specific wording has been written by people who work for these organisations and, of course, the political staffers that they're um, close to who work for politicians. Um, so that's, that's one thing and that is ongoing. And just briefly on mortgage brokers, I mean, there has been one of the most successful lobbying campaigns uh, that we have ever, uh, you know, kind of seen in recent years in regards to this final report. Yeah, um, they've, they've certainly come out in force, haven't they, to, to great they've effect? They've come out in force. They've enlisted high-profile members of their community like Mark Boris and others. They got the government, I mean, they got a prime minister to, to weigh in on their campaign and they even got the Labor Party to back down on this issue in a matter of weeks. I mean, it's an unprecedented win um, in the lobbying world, particularly because in the last few years, some of these organisations, um, particularly those representing smaller businesses like the Broking Associations, they've been sidelined to some extent. Um, and, and so this has been a big win for them. And I think other organisations are looking at the success that they've had um, and they're feeling emboldened by this and they, they're, they're going to go out and, and try and run similar campaigns. And, and of course, we're already starting to see that. Um, the other one, uh, of course, is the, the big law firms. And this is something that um, the Royal Commission only touched on briefly. Um, now, arguably going into the Royal Commission, one of the main arguments was that, um, you know, the boardroom and the CEOs and that level um, have not been held accountable enough. And I would agree with that. Mm. The Royal Commission went some way to starting to put these individuals, um, hold them to account. Um you know, a criticism you could make of the inquiry was that too often there were middle managers put on the stand or people who weren't there at the time. You know, rarely did you see the CEO, the chair or the general counsel, who are probably the people who are best qualified to answer these questions. But having said that, um, you know, it did go some way to, to holding uh, senior leaders in organisations to account from a governance point of view. It touched the surface of this law firm issue, which is, you know, big, fancy, expensive law firms advising um, big banks on mm. the way that they should conduct themselves when they're dealing with the regulator, for example. And Clayton Newt's and AMP is one example that we're, that we're seeing. And I would advise um, all of your listeners to, to keep watch on this, because this is a crucial part of how the sausage gets made. Um, and I think that you know, we, we this was not really within the remit of the Royal Commission to look at law firms specifically, but I think that um, just this one issue being exposed where they were, you know, there was this email chain where they were talking about, you know, doctoring a report that was meant to be put up to the regulator. It's serious stuff. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, despite that, those law firms, you know, their position and their strength in the market is, of course, um, upheld. And so they will continue doing that. And the final group 
who didn't get a mention at all during the Royal Commission and rarely does and is probably the most powerful of the three are the management consultants, um, the McKinsey & Co and so on, who are paid a lot of money to advise business on the sorts of decisions like, should you go and buy those licensees? Um, should you enter the wealth management market and set up these so-called financial supermarkets? If you trace back the trail of money, um, a lot of that thinking by, you know, David Murray when he was CBA CEO and um, these large organisations when they went and bought MLC and, 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 and AMP merged with AXA and they did all that, um, you know, back in the day, a lot of that advice came from the people consulting them um, who, of course, aren't actually making the decisions but are whispering in their ears. Um, and these organisations um, don't get held to account on this stuff um, and they will continue to be powerful and they'll continue to have to have something to say when big businesses pay them a lot of money to come in and do a presentation. Um, so this is why these things are cyclical. We're seeing the banks divest uh, at the moment, but I do think that, um, you know, I won't be surprised in 10 or 15 years um, when uh, they are advised to go buy these businesses once again. Mm, yeah, look, and I suspect it might happen a lot sooner than 10 to 15 years, um, <laughs> depending on uh, what the shareholders are paying for blood and uh, where they're going to be, you know, obviously driving revenue streams from as well. So, look, mate, well, that's just about us uh, pretty much out of time. Uh, actually, um, one more from Damien. Yeah, I've got a, actually, I've got a few questions completely changing tack because um, I want to sort of, sort of get off the Royal Commission on to sort of more broader investment themes. Sure. So um, Aussie investors generally are very, very underinvested internationally. Mm. Uh, and so I just wanted to sort of um, sort of coming back to, I guess, uh, our views on that whole part about um, the housing market slowdown providing sort of a pretty good opportunity for people to, to look for uh, exposure offshore. I just want to see your thoughts in terms of uh, whether you're seeing sort of at the coalface people are actually um, starting to get into more direct international investment or, or are we still just seeing sort of the, more of the, uh, the managed funds? Yeah, look, I think that um, obviously this runs deep as a culture. I mean, you know, firstly, our uh, love of bricks and mortar and then secondly, our sort of home bias towards Aussie equities. Um, very, very Thank you to Frank and Credit, sir. <laughs> our love of the tax. The tax Absolutely. So, you know, this is an election issue as well now. I mean, if you told me, uh, you know, four years ago that there'd be an election fought on franking credits and the outcomes of, in, you know, vertical integration in wealth management, I, I would have been surprised about that. But we'll see how that one plays out. And obviously that will impact um, the way that investors see these things. Um, look, I think there's, there's two buckets. There are people who are already investing, um, who have these kind of, um, who come into this, with a preconceived investment philosophy. And I think that's totally legitimate um, for people to have that when they're investing their money. Obviously, it's a task for those that advise them um, to try and tell them to look abroad if they think that's in their interest and to educate them on this stuff. Certainly, um, we in the media try to as well. Um, but I think where the real opportunity lies is in um, this large cohort of individuals who are waking up to um, the need to take control of their finances. And I do believe that there is a large group out there who are fit this bill. Um, as I said earlier, they're, they're watching um, the media, they're watching these issues play out and, and they're starting to lean into this. And I think for those people who, are, who, who sadly um, don't have a lot of financial literacy in school um, and are coming with investable assets, but really very little in the way of knowledge or preconceptions to the investment world, I think there's a huge opportunity for the industry to start at square one with these um, individuals and families and to explain to them, um, I guess, some of these broader issues you're talking about and try to avoid some of the biases that perhaps, you know, rusted on day traders um, invariably have. Um, so, yeah, look, I, th I think that, um, you know, that's a really interesting one, the, the international thing. The, the other one, of course, is this move towards um, uh, passive. Um, and I think that, you know, the passive investment managers um, have done a great job in their marketing, particularly in the United States over the last 20 years or so on capitalising on fear and distrust um, that's really warranted, I guess, in the financial system, but they've done a great job of explaining um, to investors that 
um, you know, passive is the solution to that. Um, and I think that, you know, active managers, in my assessment, have done a poor job of responding to that. Um, you know, they continue to just talk about returns um, when they're not really engaging in that battle of ideas over, you know, can people really outperform the market? Is that the burden of expectation that we should have from our financial product providers and our, um, you know, those managing our assets? Um, so again, I think on this issue, there is an opportunity for asset managing for active managers not just to talk to the people who perhaps um, have already attained wealth and have firm political views on these sorts of topics but to engage the people that, that, that are coming into this relatively um, blind, although eager, to change their situation. Yeah, and I guess coming, I mean, the, the issue from my perspective is as an active manager, we, we sort of look and go, look, we think we can outperform and we, we go through all our processes and, and mm-hmm. so far we've, we've proven that to be true. The, uh, the issue is do I want to stand up for all the other active managers out there who, who I sometimes read stuff, you know, they see in, I see in the paper and go, that guy's got, got no idea and there's other ones who you go, yeah, these people do know what they're doing but, but it is, it's a lot harder as an active manager to stand up for your entire industry when you know there's people yeah. out there are overcharging and taking far more than what they, they get. Whereas as a passive guy, if you're looking at, um, you know, you're all investing in, in indexes and you're all charging quite low fees, it's a lot easier to stand up for, for people who are doing similar stuff to you because there's not a lot of differentiation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that that's probably one of the things that, that does lead to that hesitancy to sort of make the argument for active as a concept rather than, you know, talking about the specifics of your particular philosophy and, and, and process. You hear a lot more about uh, individual processes. But um, while I, you know, understand that from a marketing point of view, I think that it is legitimate for consumers to, um, you know, be questioning the fees that are being charged. Um, and I think that, um, you know, passive is, for me, as someone who um, has you know, been in an enviable position where I'm paid to learn about these things and understand them. Um, I I know that, you know, a mixture of both of these kinds of products and diversification is the answer um, and that in most cases it's not in the interest of an investor to simply go for one style of investment. Um, But, you know, when I was on the ground in the US, I would meet a lot of investment investors and even investment advisors who would tell me that they are 100% passive. They are, you know, paid up. They've been drinking the Kool-Aid. They don't believe that active can exist. They, they fully subscribe to this Vanguard mentality. Um, and, you know, I think that's a trend that's coming here. So um, however uh, they go about it is up to them. But I think that the, the rest of the industry will need to come up with a plan to, to, to combat that. And I think um, now's a good time because, as I say, people are hungry for this information. Mm. Very good. Okay. Well, yeah, thanks very much for that, Alex. And um, just uh, while we've got our listeners on the line, how can they hear and read more about some of the work that you're doing? Yeah, so uh, yourmoney.com.au is the um, easiest place. So, look, we we didn't go into this um, believing it was going to be an easy task. You know, a lot of um, media providers in the past have attempted to engage Australia with their finances, but we firmly believe that, you know, that there's never better time, better time than now. Um, and we believe that, you know, if anyone's going to have a good crack at it, then, then we can. Um, so you can find plenty of information there. And if I can put in a shameless plug, uh, finally, you know, Tim did mention at the outset there um, my book, USA G'day. I would say that it is semi-autobiographical, but thankfully for the readers, it's not entirely autobiographical. Um, <laughs> I talk about a whole range of issues there um, from my time covering the wealth management industry um, and also the US uh, presidential election. So uh, my publisher will be very a- angry at me if I didn't uh, make that clarification. Um, and they can find it on Amazon. Yeah, yeah, sure thing, mate. I'll include a link in our show notes and on our uh, on our YouTube page. So uh, appreciate that. Look on that on that note. Yeah, look, thank you very much for your time today, and certainly we've got a lot out of it. Um, it's great to hear somebody who's had such a, a breadth of experience and uh, lived and, and physically breathed the air of a, of a royal commission as well to to give us some of your highlights and uh, and your insights. So we thank you for your time and uh, look forward to getting you on very soon, Alex. Yeah, thanks, gents, and uh, commend you on the uh, on the podcast. Great initiative, and uh, you know, keep up the thought leadership. All the best. Cheers. Good on you. Thank you. 
So, Damien, uh, terrific 50-odd minutes there spent with Alex Figovich, a guy that knows uh, plenty about the Royal Commission. He's, he sat through a lot of it and was uh, feeding a lot of information back to the industry as uh, eyes and ears, so that was always good to hear about. What, what were your sort of takeaways? Yeah, look, pretty similar to, uh, to what we've seen from a couple of our guests recently. I think that we've, we've obviously focused a lot on this Royal Commission because uh, banks and insurers are such a huge a huge part of the Australian economy. They're mm. sort of, um, and sorry, the Australian stock market as well as the economy, um, sort of 40-odd percent. And so, you know, a, a real key issue for most people as you're investing is to say, um, has something structurally changed with the banks? So uh, taking a longer-term view about this, um, banks have managed to grow their um, their loan books well above um, uh, inf- in, uh, wage growth, well above um, inflation, well above you know you add all these all these different factors. They sort of they've had double-digit um, loan growth for years and years and years. And the question is saying, well, if, if people's wages are growing at two percent, um, you can't be growing your debts you know they can't be growing their debts at 10 15 percent every year so so that's got to come to a got to come to a stop at, at, at some point sure and so i think the the uh that you know we haven't seen anything um that's dissuading us for the view that in the short term that that's finished and that you've got a you you do have this payback now where people could borrow a million dollars who can now only borrow six hundred thousand dollars or mm-hmm. or whatever it is so you've got this short-term issue around investment but um there's going to be a time to buy the banks again because mm. um, they really. What could have happened, as as we spoke with Alex, is you could have seen um, structural separation. You could have seen the banks being broken up. You could have seen um, rules about what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do. Um, so sort of in in the USA, there's what called Dodd Frank, which sort of tries to separate what you can do in in some banking and 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 can't do in other ones. Okay, with. Just tossed all that aside. We've basically said, well, the regulators didn't do as much as they could have done, and um, we'll, we'll, we'll ban some mortgage brokers, and and by and large, the rest of it will sort itself out. Mm. And so, what that does do is, um, once the sort of memory of this fades, and whether it be four, five, six years, or whatever, to to sort of move away from that, um, there's going to be a great investment case for for, for jumping on the banks. Um, we just think the cycle's turned on them, though. Yep. And that you've got this short-term issue, and and that. Um, you know, step aside until uh, until it's time to come back once the the dust is cleared. And do you think that the um, well, at least three of the four major banks jettisoning their uh, advice sort of arms during the Royal Commission? Um, it obviously means in a sense perhaps from a business point of view that you can sort of cut off and remunerate and fix up and then start with a fresh slate for a potential you know re-emergence into the advice industry at some point yeah oh, look I think if you took a 15 20 year look at banks they're, they're pretty um, they're cyclical buyers and sellers of, of, of other add-on businesses as well mm-hmm. so they sort of they'll add a whole bunch of things to, to it and then they'll then they'll get rid of them all and then the next cycle will happen and yep. they'll be looking at all these other wealth managers or whatever they are you know all these other aspects of the finance industry they can they can buy and bolt on and mm-hmm. then they'll be flicking them off again so um, yeah I've got no doubt that that absent um, regulation that actually specifically prohibits them from from doing things in different areas yep. you'll get a new CEO and yeah, in four, in five, ten years, fifteen years time, whatever it takes for for it all to start. You'll have a bright idea. Hey, let's get back into the advice industry. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> off we go. Yeah. Okay, very good. And just broadly speaking, um, around the the housing market, obviously we've released recently the um, a an option as our one of our portfolio screens to limit the amount of Aussie uh, housing exposure, as we we touched yeah. on last last week's podcast. Yeah. So we, so we um, within our portfolios, given given the view we've got, we obviously limit. The housing exposure as it um, to in terms of what we actually buy within our, our portfolios. Sure. Having said that, though, um, I think as any sort of um, diligent manager would do, you have constraints around what you can what you can and can't buy within portfolios, and so you, it's not a matter of saying, well, if if you go with a, a manager that they can stick a hundred percent into into one speculative stock or, mm. or whatever. So so our limits are very much the uh, the top stocks. So within Australia, it's about the top seventy. It's mm-hmm. called the uh, MSCI Australia index. Yep. Um, and within that, um, we've got plus or minus fifteen percent to any one sector. 
Mm, so okay. if you go through the sectors, um, some of the big, very big sectors of the banks um, we've we've got exposure to. Yep. And then within some of the other sectors, we've from time to time we've we've had exposures to to other stocks. So what we've um, what we've done is we've given um, people the option now to say, well, you've got these safety exposures on there to so that um, so that you don't go too far out, away from your mandate and and you are providing a low risk steady portfolio that's going to sort of outperform over time. Yep. But it's not taking wild bets. Mm. Um, but there's we've got a lot of people who have. Said no, I'd actually like to um, completely divorce myself from either the banks or, or anything to do with the property sector, whether it be discretionary retailers like Harvey Norman or yep. or anything like that. So, so, so in a sense, um, without having that ticked on, there's still some exposure in there, just purely because the mandates we've put together, we yeah. could be very underweight them or as, as underweight as we can go, but yep. there's still the mandate requires us to have and, some in there, and therefore yeah. ticking the box means no. I'd like to t- reduce that to zero and yep, effectively absolutely. turn it on later and, on. And similar to what we do with a, with a lot of things where, yep. you know, some people have chosen not to be um, in animal health. Yep. Oh, sorry, anything animal to do testing. with animal testing. Yep. And, and so, you know, for, for a stock like a Unilever or, or something like that, used to be outside the index. It's now, you know, you know come along and, and we've popped it back into to those people portfolio. So we've got a number of those types of ones where people can make those decisions. The key thing I'd just say with the housing one is um, – there will be a time to buy these, mm. and that's where what, what we're trying to do is time these things. And, and when we say when the when the prices get low enough, we'll say, well, might not be the bottom, but we're we're happy to buy it at at a, at a certain level where yep. we think we'll, we'll make money over the longer term. Mm-hmm. And so by by switching them off, you know, that's taking that, that out of out of our hands and putting it back into investors' hands, which so- which is a good thing in some ways, but. But at some stage, you'll need to reverse that. Well, that's right. Yeah, I guess we, you could be right. You could be very right with it switched on, but you need to make sure that you uh, untick it at some point so that um, you can replenish the, the portfolio. Okay, great mm. point. All right, very good. So uh, on that note. Well, that's it for now, and thanks for watching. If you like what you heard today and you'd like to hear more, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash subscribe. Give us your email address and in return we'll send you a weekly email with new webinar topics, links for our podcasts and other news from Nucleus Wealth. I certainly hope you've got something out of today as I have and we'll look forward to catching you with the next one. Cheers.